This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. And I'm Jonathan. Today is Matilda, arguably, at her pinnacle. Now, I've thoroughly enjoyed learning more about Matilda of Flanders, but I really love this chapter of Matilda's life, and I sincerely hope you do too. Before we begin, let me urge each of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, great stuff's happening on Patreon as well. In this Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Normandy, and others, of course, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd just unseated in England. So if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. All right, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 80, is entitled, Behind Every Great Man, Part 3. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. So far we've learned what? Matilda's something else, isn't she? She nailed it when it came to being exactly what William needed as a counterbalance to his barbaric, cruel, even warlike nature. She was everything William required as a medieval nobleman's wife by producing a rather large number of heirs and daughters with which to build his dynasty. And she was an active and attentive mother to both her sons and her daughters. What can't that woman do? Well, she was also a duke's wife. A duchess, that is, of Normandy. Tracy Borman, in her book, Queen of the Conqueror, puts it this way about the happy couple, quote, Their domestic harmony and burgeoning dynasty made them a formidable partnership, end quote. And this marriage seemed to reflect the flourishing of Normandy itself during the 1050s, as cities like Rouen, Bayou, and Caen had a boom in both population and economic prosperity. Borman lists the various castles William and Matilda lived in during this time. Falais, Bayou, Bonneville-sur-Touc, Rouen, Fécamp. This showed that William didn't live in the same fear, so to speak, of his countrymen as he once did. He traveled. And the people? Well, they fell head over heels with Matilda in the process. At the very beginning of the marriage, in the early 1050s, William of Poitiers later said, Rouen, when Matilda first arrived, quote-unquote, gave itself over to rejoicing at the entry of this spouse. Borman adds to Poitiers, quote, The newlyweds made a leisurely progress throughout the domain over which Matilda was now duchess. William was surely keen to show off his new bride a, quote-unquote, magnificent match, whose esteemed lineage diluted considerably the shame of his birth. Everywhere she went, Matilda was greeted with enthusiasm and tokens of affection by her new subjects. The Normans had not had a duchess since Duke Richard II's reign, which was 996 to 1026, as both of his sons had been content to live with their mistresses, and they were determined to celebrate the new arrival. End quote. Now, in attempt to tie this moment in William and Matilda's story with what we've already said on the past episodes, let me point out that it was within months of his wedding, as the couple was traveling the duchy, that one Robert of Jumiege, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, 
who had had the ear of King Edward in England, well, he escaped back to Normandy when Earl Godwin returned from exile. Do you remember this? Robert of Jumiege was cornered in London, and then he made a break for it, grabbing jewels, coins, and a couple hostages along the way. Well, not just any hostages. We're talking Godwin's son, Wolfnoth, and grandson, Hakan. Oh, and do you remember the stuff Robert of Jumiege told William? Well, some of it was most likely a massive lie about Edward congratulating William on his new marriage and that he would like to bestow the crown of England to William upon his death. Yeah, makes total sense, right? Either way, this is the timeline of the record, so that's all we have to go on, unfortunately. Listeners of the podcast will know that I'm not a big fan of this theory of Edward offering William his crown, and apparently, I mean, not to speak for, but Borman seems to agree, I think. She says, quote, Just how seriously William took Edward's promise, or indeed whether Edward even made such a promise, can never be known for certain. The accounts of it are mostly Norman, and might well have been written as a retrospective justification for the Duke's later invasion. End quote. She goes on a bit, but nothing we haven't covered already here on the podcast, but there's absolutely no question whatsoever that Matilda catapulted William's already rising star across the kingdoms of political Europe. But supposed messages from King Edward's court across the Channel weren't the only prestigious folks making contact with Normandy upon their wedding. Pope Leo's statement be damned. Religious leaders such as William's half-brother, Odo of Bayeux, of course, was there quite frequently, but others such as Hugh de Lisieux, William de Evreux, and John de Vranches, who would one day become the Archbishop of Rouen. They also made their faces known. Though some of these names are new to the podcast, they were some pretty serious heavy hitters in their day. Other counts across France, such as those from Eu, Mortain, and Evreux, cozied up to William by the late 1050s. But William's own longtime friends and advisors, like William Fitzosborne, Roger de Beaumont, and Roger de Montgomery, remained steadfast by his side through it all. But no one could take Matilda's place. She remained first among firsts in William's life. But these two couldn't have been more different, as we've said. Borman tells us about how Matilda chose to spend her time as opposed to how William chose to spend his time. She writes, quote, He preferred rough, body entertainments to the refinements favored by more learned rulers. And he often used violence in jest. On one occasion, he beat a forester with an animal bone for querying a grant to a monastery. That he took such pleasure in terrifying and humiliating the victims of his cruel jests proved him more a bully than a man of genuine humor. End quote. And all this said, Matilda would be the one who really established how the ducal court of Normandy would be known. I mean, she would know best, wouldn't she? Not only was her mother Adela one of the most refined women in Europe in the 11th century, but the Flemish court itself was known for its refinement by that time. Matilda made sure the rest of Europe was made aware of the Norman flourishing of the arts during her husband's reign, despite how her husband really was. William wasn't really meant for the courtly life, given his earliest years, but this didn't mean he didn't understand and appreciate its significance in the grand scheme of things. To be quite honest, not only did he not care for it, but he wasn't that good at it all, all that, that frivolous pomp and circumstance. But his wife was. Our author tells us that William spent day in and day out, when not on campaign, 
rising early, hunting stags and wild boar, returning for lunch, and then returning to the hunt until sundown. Matilda, on the other hand, began her day with mass before setting her children up for the day's learning, but then quickly began making her day-long appearances at court, quote-unquote hearing petitions, overseeing her accounts, and receiving important visitors. While her husband stayed as sharp as a sword, she held down the duchy in grand fashion. Quote, given her interest in intellectual pursuits, Borman writes, it was no doubt, thanks to her, that literature flourished there. She and William became active literary patrons, and the chronicler, William of Jumiege, noted approvingly that, quote, unquote, illustrious men, excellently versed and learned in letters, surrounded the Duke and his family, end quote of Borman. Historiographies popped onto the Norman scene as well, most notably with William of Poitiers. Our author adds that embroidery, reading, and listening to music from instruments such as early versions of the harp, the viol, and various horns were favorite pastimes. Chess was also a popular game for both men and women alike. It was around 1059, almost a full decade, mind you, after uh, they, they started their betrothal, you could say, that a different pope, Pope Nicholas II, finally lifted the papal ban on their marriage. It wasn't some act of purity on the pope's part, though. William offered military assistance to get Nicholas back into Rome after being booted by a Holy Roman Empire-backed pope. Either way, the paperwork was finally approved, and God allowed the union to proceed legally, something I'm sure God was quite worried about, I'm sure. In response, both Matilda and William funded the building of two brand-new, first-class religious centers in Cain. William's was a monastery called Saint-Étienne, and Matilda's was an abbey called La Trinité, or, as we said on the last episode, the Abbey of the Holy Trinity, where she would one day commit her daughter Cecilia to as a way to bless her husband's violent invasion of a foreign kingdom that he, well really had no right to. Sorry, are my opinions showing too much? Anyway, Wace would one day compose a poem quoted by Borman, which said the following, In Cain at last their work to crown, two abbeys rose within the town, two monasteries side by side, that should for monks and nuns provide. And while William was out gallivanting across the forested hills of his duchy, Matilda was quick to flourish these two new projects, with various holy relics. Why the need for the fingers and hair of saints, you may ask? Why was this so pressing? It's said that Matilda was already in possession of a vial of Jesus' blood, surprisingly an outstanding condition, that is, still apparently a liquid, after more than a thousand years since the man walked the earth some 3,000 miles to the southwest. Matilda also had a small collection of splinters from the Holy Cross, a strand of the Virgin Mary's hair, bread that Jesus had touched. Also in remarkable condition, apparently. My bread goes after a week or so, but hey, good for her. And of course, she had so much more. I love how Borman referred to Matilda's collections of relics, calling it, quote, a veritable Aladdin's cave of minor saints' body parts, end quote. I found that pretty awesome. This included St. Cecile's finger, St. Denis' hair, St. George's blood, 
and various other parts, as well as a few complete corpses. Borman clarifies this collection, saying, quote, This may seem macabre to modern observers, but enormous importance was placed upon such items in the Middle Ages. Bones, body parts, or other items closely associated with saints were believed to be imbued with that saint's power, and many miracles were attributed to such relics in popular tales and legends. The better a religious house's collection, the more blessed it was considered to be, end quote. I stress that last sentence. Again, it's worth mentioning over and over again Matilda's deep understanding of the intricate relationships between religion, politics, and economics. Matilda was a smart lady. But here's where it takes a strange turn in Borman's retelling of Matilda's life. And I can't help but recollect my readings about the Lincolns in American history. See, after the death of her children, Mary Todd Lincoln, even during her role as First Lady of the United States, would hire mediums to hold seances in the White House to try desperately to make contact with them. It's heartbreaking to think that this mother was so distraught that she was willing to compromise her deeply held Christian beliefs by tinkering with the supposed toys and games of the devil, while her husband stood by and watched knowing he, even as President of the United States, who was leading a war of reunion at the time, was still powerless to help her through her grief. But it seems Mary Todd and Matilda had something in common. Deep Christian faith, so easily cast aside for the trappings and supposed gifts of the occult. Borman tells us that Matilda was a profound believer of magic and other trickeries. She says, quote, For all her political shrewdness and guile, Matilda was known to be superstitious, and during critical periods of her life, she occasionally sought the advice of mystics and magicians. She's recorded to have once consulted the bones of a sheep's shoulder in the hope of foretelling the future, a practice that was common in her native Flanders. End quote. Yeah, calls into question the validity of Matilda's intense piety, but as it was so commonplace a thousand years ago, we can't assume that Matilda wasn't as pious as she's said to be. Reaching into the religious bag of whatever works is sometimes what we all do, even those who claim to be without faith. Everyone has faith in something. Even if faith is a belief that nothing else exists, it's still faith. I'm not inclined to crucify Matilda for such efforts, pun intended. She lived in an intensely superstitious world where magic and beasts and what we now call the occult wasn't as clearly defined as it is today. It's an easy modern trap to fall into, as we've mentioned numerous times on the podcast so far. We need to use caution when judging folks from the past. Either way, in the political arena, Matilda, quote, put her signature to a total of 100 charters, covering a wide range of business, end quote. Now, to be clear, Matilda signed off on so many charters that she towered over even the likes of William's closest advisors. Borman adds, quote, up until this point, women had rarely played even a supporting role in the history of the reigning dukes. They'd been obscure mistresses or illegitimate offspring, easily dispensed with hand, rarely named in the sources. Now, Matilda was enjoying a position of such prominence that she would have been the envy of consorts across Western Europe. It seemed that William had met his match, and he appeared to revel in the fact. End quote. But Matilda never failed to be the wife that society expected her to be either. 
One example in the record shows William deathly ill, like legit on his deathbed. This happened around 1063 or 1064. We're not, we're not quite sure. William took to the bed in Cherbourg, and Matilda went quickly to his side. One chronicle states, quote, his life was wholly despaired of, and, she, and, excuse me, and he was laid on the ground as at the point of death and gave the canons of that church the relics of the saints which he carried about in his own chapel, end quote. William was even bargaining with God to spare his life, like, like it sounded bad. But as Matilda lay on the floor and sat in a chair beside him for days on end, never leaving his side, except when she went to St. Mary's Cathedral in Coutances, gifting the church 100 shillings, praying, quote-unquote, that God and St. Mary might give her back her dearest husband. But let's be honest here, a, middle, a medieval wife was in a pretty precarious position anyway. As much as she may have cared for William, and I don't at a certain point doubt that, William was also the Duke. If he died, then what would happen to Matilda? Despite how capable Matilda was, noble wives were relegated to the abbey upon the death of her husband unless other arrangements could be made. Matilda knew what was at stake here. Lucky for her, William pulled through. But as lucky as it was for Matilda, it would prove to be incalculably unluckier for the English. Something interesting happened there around the time William was nearly knocked down for a 10 count, though. In 1063... So most likely just before William took ill, I would imagine, William called all of his barons and ecclesiastics to his side for an important announcement. He no doubt had distant memories come to mind when planning the occasion, memories possibly buried and shared with few. As he brought his firstborn, young Robert, aged around 10 years old, he must have remembered his father holding onto his shoulders and turning him to face the nobility and clergy in the duke's presence. His father's deep, somber voice calling his loyal men to swear their allegiances to the young heir, well, it mirrored his own right in front of him. Across the previous 30 years, his face felt the impact of his father's fist as his own fist connected Roberts in the distinctly Norman ceremony called dubbing, a ceremony that welcomed young men into the realm of manhood. The only difference was the presence of the mother. Though Herleva would never have been admitted into such a meeting, Robert's mother stood by and watched the proceedings. It must have been equally horrifying as it was pride-inducing for Matilda to witness such a brutal display of love and of loyalty. But she endured it nonetheless. Robert Curthose was now officially the heir to William's Normandy. And by 1064... William also, finally, captured the county of Maine to the south, a land he had yearned to control for decades. This, at long last, cushioned Normandy's southern border against Anjou and other possible threats. That equated to his barons along Normandy's southern borderlands to no longer having reason to rebel against William's rule. There was no longer any threat to their land holdings, so they no longer questioned their duke's abilities to protect them. Borman writes, quote, The ducal couple, couple, who together had established a spectacularly successful regime on their home turf, were on the brink of international glory, 
and Matilda, who had rapidly established her independence and authority as Duchess of Normandy, would be central to their success. End quote. But a visitor would grace their presence, as we know, sometime quite soon after William made young Robert his heir to the continental domains, after he was pulled from the very brink of death, and after he secured the county of Maine as his own. This visitor would revive claims, legit or not, that William had supposedly had for years. As we know, Earl Harold Godwinson was by far the most powerful person on the island kingdom of England. And though Harold had traveled all the way to Hungary and Rome just a few years before, he, for whatever reason, decided to travel to the continent in 1064. Unfortunately, he was blown off course and ended up in the still quite rough coastline of Flanders. And in sweeps Duke William to save the good Earl, and we know the story from there about how William holds Harold pretty much against his will, though lavishing him with all the extravagances of an honored guest of the duchies. Harold even accompanied William on an excursion to put down a small invasion from the Bretons to the west, a series of events that not only showed Harold the real threat that was the Norman cavalry, but also it showed William the threat that was one Earl Harold Godwinson, when Harold not only fought alongside the Normans in battle bravely, but also selflessly, it's said, to have saved Normans from certain death in some quicksand. It was educational for both men, no doubt. Though this course of events is presented as quasi-evidence on the Bayou Tapestry, nothing really shows us how Matilda reacted to the Saxon nobleman's visit. And there's no real way to know for sure, but you can't deny that thoughts of the only other Englishman of note in her life probably resurfaced. Britrick, the wealthy thane who publicly spurned her years earlier, was most likely close to the surface during Harold's stay in her home. Like Britrick, Harold Godwinson was also charming and attractive, says Borman. She quotes Orderic Vitalis when the chronicler admits that Harold was, quote, very tall and handsome, remarkable for his physical strength, his courage, his eloquence, his ready jests, and acts of valor, end quote. And Orderic Vitalis was hardly a fan of Earl-turned-King Harold. It wasn't just Orderic that talks about Harold's charm and good looks, though. Several chroniclers mention such things about him. Borman writes, quote, Whether Matilda felt nostalgic or resentful upon meeting this scion of the Anglo-Saxon race is not recorded but she would certainly have been present for all of the elaborate ceremonials that her husband had ordered. See, all involved at this point, William, Matilda, Harold, were in their mid-30s to 40s, and all were renowned for something. William, his physique, his military brilliance and courage. Matilda, her beauty, her piety, her political acumen, her, her just general brilliance and Harold for his formidable height and flowing blonde hair, his leadership abilities, his sense of humor, and his cunning. These folks were in their prime in this moment. We need to take this next account for what it's worth, an account written two centuries after the fact. But we know that Snorri Sturluson, its author, the famous Icelandic chronicler, used source material that's no longer available to us today, but well, you can choose to do it whatever you want to do with this information. Sturluson said, quote, The Duke went generally to bed, 
but Harold and the Duke's wife sat long in the evenings talking together for amusement at the drinking table. End quote. William began to get jealous, apparently, and Matilda confided as much in Harold Godwinson as a warning. Borman's correct in reminding us that Matilda knew quite intimately the house of Godwin as she grew up in Bruges, remember? I mean, if you remember, it was Flanders where Earl Godwin and his family had escaped in 1050 when he was exiled. Now, Godwin had fostered quite close relations with the Counts of Flanders, and Matilda no doubt remembered these bonds. In fact, though we know that Harold went to Ireland to recruit help on an invasion of England in response to that exile by King Edward, uh, but there's, you know, there's still a pretty good chance that Matilda and Harold were once uh, acquainted with each other. And there in the early 1060s, they were merely maybe catching up on old times. William's jealousy didn't go that far, we know, because knowing William, Harold may never have made it out of Normandy alive had the jealousy continued. But there's more to this little rumor of William's jealousy than just the conjecture of a 12th century Icelandic storyteller. It's said that when Harold heard of William's supposed jealousy of his conversations with Matilda, he quickly went to the Duke's side and said the following, quote, I have to inform you, Duke, that there that there lies more in my visit here than I have let you know. I would ask your daughter in marriage and have spoken often over this matter with her mother, and she has promised to support my suit with you. End quote. Yeah. Interesting, no? Borman writes, quote, It is possible that the betrothal between Adeliza and Harold is depicted in the Bayou Tapestry, one of only three women to feature in the work is a lady referred to as Elfgiva. She appears just after a scene in which the captive Harold is at William's palace in Rouen, and the two men are in earnest discussion. She is standing in an ornate doorframe, perhaps part of the ducal palace. A priest touches her on the cheek, while a naked figure in the lower border mimics the gesture in a suggestive fashion. The action then returns to William and Harold as they depart for their campaign in Brittany. Two recent historians have claimed that the puzzling scene represents Adeliza's betrothal to Harold. According to their theory, the priest is either placing a veil over the girl's head or removing it, both of which actions were involved in formal ceremonies of betrothal. She is referred to as Elfgiva because she may have adopted this English name upon her marriage to Harold just as Queen Emma had done when she married Ethelred the Unready in 1002. End quote. Borman, though admitting that this theory is, is a quality one that may hold some truths in it, she also casts doubt upon it as well. First of all, the naked figure, she says, in the lower margins suggests a scandal of a certain type. And second, Adeliza would have been but a child, which makes it unlikely. Borman also suggests that this Elfgiva could have also been Harold's own sister, the queen back home. Whatever that could mean, it's a possibility that Harold was negotiating something for his sister, not for William's daughter. Could it have been what many have thought for centuries, that Harold was there to negotiate for the release of his nephew, Hakan, and his dear younger brother, Wolfnoth? And William just took an advantage of a great situation. Well, it's a big possibility. And Borman's word, words, quote, if this oath really did take place, then it was a masterly tactic on William's part. 
At a stroke, he had forced one of his chief rivals for the English throne to admit that his own claim was inferior to the Duke's. And he made sure the rest of the world knew about it by arranging a great gathering of notables to witness Harold's oath. If and when the time came to invade, William could appear fully justified. And as we know, William certainly made it seem like he was fully justified for his invasion of England and in his engaging of King Harold II Godwinson on the battlefield outside Hastings. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of inclined, actually, may seem surprising, to give this theory of Harold marrying into the house of William and Matilda a little, just a pinch of credibility. Now hear me out. If Harold Godwinson would have married Adeliza, he would have become their son-in-law, thus combining arguably the three most powerful houses in Europe together. Those of the wealthy Earl of Wessex, the fierce Duke of Normandy, and the prestigious Count of Flanders. I mean, that's a damn near unstoppable alliance, if you ask me. But what happened when Harold was finally allowed to go home? Well, he quickly allied himself with the House of Leofrich, that is, the brothers of Earl Edwin of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria, and married into their family. Now, whatever the reason, had Harold actually married or committed to Adeliza by marrying anyone else, he negated the betrothal to William, which was no doubt a heinous affront to William's pride. Mind you, it was only a few years earlier, before he invaded and conquered Maine, that Adeliza was betrothed to the Count of Maine's son, but also after to the Count of Maine himself, though both men died before the wedding could take place, which is why they switched. Adeliza was already becoming dead weight on William's claim to greatness, and if, if her betrothal to Harold was true, this was yet another massive disappointment. Maybe it was one too many. Could this have been the straw that broke the camel's back? It's kind of sad when you think about Adeliza, though. She wasn't even at fault for two, possibly three, betrothals that fell through, yet she was still at the heart of her father's disappointment. And there were a few chroniclers who supported this betrothal theory between Harold Godwinson and Adeliza of Normandy, including Orderic Vitalis, who wrote how Adeliza had fallen head over heels for the dashing blonde Saxon lord. However true, we know what occurred next. It would, well, it'd be the most important date in English history. October 16th, 1066. And it would not be without Matilda's playing a few key roles here either. Matilda would commit a massive amount of her own wealth to the construction of the Norman flagship in the invasion of England, an extravagant ship she named Mora, though we don't exactly know what that name means. Borman writes, quote, Considering its scale, it was constructed with remarkable speed, and the result was formidable. Clearly, it was built for a show as much as for service. The Bayou Tapestry depicts it as a vast ship. It's called Magno Navigo on the tapestry. Larger than the rest of the fleet and carrying more men. It was highly decorated and modeled in the Viking style, with billowing four-cornered sails painted in stripes of red or brown and yellow. Matilda had planned every detail with meticulous care and each of the embellishments was loaded with symbolism. A contemporary document known as the Ship List of William the Conqueror 
tells how the Duchess ordered her craftsmen to make a figurehead of a golden child, with his right forefinger pointing toward England and his left hand pressing an iron horn, excuse me, an ivory horn against his lips. Although Wace believed that this represented one of William and Matilda's sons, it may have symbolized a future son rather than a present one. End quote. Now, that's an interesting detail. Why would she have commissioned a young boy on the bow of William's ship? One theory, which holds considerable weight, actually, says that Matilda had become pregnant during the stages, the late stages of the build-up to war, say, May or June of 1066. Now, that's my own guess. I wonder if any physical symptoms would have shown by, say, August or early September, warranting her to give her husband a secretive hint as to what was growing in her tiny little body. Borman continues, quote, It was exceptionally rare for a figurehead to be made in the form of a child. They usually depict animals or fantastical creatures such as dragons or monsters. The prow was ornamented with a lion's head, a sign of bravery and strength. In order to demonstrate that God was on her husband's side, Matilda also employed the consecrated banner that had, that had been sent to William from Rome, hoisting it at the masthead. The end result inspired awe in all who saw it. End quote. In return for the incredible vessel, William promised her all <laughs> of Kent, the wealthiest part of England. A bit of Harold Godwinson's property, mind you, a large chunk of it. Along with that, though young Robert Curthose was the heir to Normandy, Matilda was given the nod as the lead regent in the duchy during William's time across the Channel. Sure, it was a nod of affection and respect for Matilda, but, you know, it went a little deeper than that. Borman explains, quote, That William should bypass his eldest son in this way was no great surprise, given the disdain that he had always felt toward him. In his own opinion, Robert was a feckless, pampered young man, overly indulged by his mother and with no real credibility among the aristocracy of Normandy. It would be the first of many occasions on which the Duke disregarded his son's wishes and relations between them rapidly began to sour. End quote. To be clear, it was on the eve of William's greatest adventure and accomplishment that the bond between he and his eldest son began to break down. This would lead to disastrous consequences. For Matilda's end, per Borman, quote, no female consort before Matilda had exercised such power, end quote. Matilda had all the powers of a duke when William set sail. She could make laws, settle disputes between peasants and nobility alike, raise money, spend money, and engage the Norman military, if needed. Rouget de Beaumont and Rouget de Montgomery and Hugh de Vranches were appointed her advisors, but not her seniors, which was astonishing during the 11th century. It would be roughly a month before she heard any news of the invasion led by her husband. By the time she heard word from England, William was marching his way toward Dover, events we know well already. She was praying at Notre Dame de Prix, a relatively new priory, along the River Seine, which today is just a handful of miles, as I understand it, from the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Matilda, in her elation at hearing of her husband's good fortunes, promptly renamed Notre-Dame-de-Prés to Notre-Dame-de-Bonne-Nouvelle. I am butchering this, I know. 
or in English, I'll just stick with English, Our Lady of Good News. She also immediately turned into Oprah Winfrey, too, because every church seemed to get a boatload of money from her coffers at that point, all in the name of thanking God for protecting her husband in battle. However, it would be a full two years until Matilda actually made her way to England across the channel to her new domain, actually living up to her title of Matilda, Queen of England. But, like everything else William tried to do in England, the fact that William tried to have Matilda coronated was met with hostility by the natives. Borman writes, quote, It had not hitherto been the practice of the Saxon kings to gratify their wives with the title of queen, end quote. In the meantime, William gifted his wife Buckinghamshire, Surrey, Hampshire, Wiltshire, Gloucestershire, Dorset, Devon, and Cornwall. Borman explains that, according to the Domesday Book, a mighty tome compiled in 1086 and stands as one of the most trustworthy sources with which to see the impacts of the Norman conquest of England, mind you. So according to the Domesday Book, Matilda earned in today's currency about half a million dollars annually from all these properties. In addition to this, Borman explains Matilda was also entitled to what was called Queen's Gold, which equated to a tenth of everything paid to the crown. But wait, let's go back just a second. Did you catch those land holdings? Specifically the ones located within the southwest of the kingdom. See, there was a, there was a wealthy Saxon who, according to the Chronicle of Tewkesbury, was eventually imprisoned in Winchester, only to die two years later in that same prison. It also states that Matilda was sure to deny the city of Gloucestershire of its royal charter around this time, thus depriving it of certain privileges within the kingdom. Well, that right there had to do with this guy. But why? See, when Matilda was finally allowed to come to England, after William was able to ensure her security, mind you, that's when this guy curiously gets dealt with, you could say. So she gets coronated in grand fashion, as William would have it no other way, of course. And what comes with such grand events is a vast collection of barons and ecclesiastics. And when all of these people come together, there's no doubt a ton of business that also needs to be addressed while everyone's there. Thus, huge councils and meetings are held. Borman narrates it this way. She says, quote, Among the charters is a grant by William to Giso, the Bishop of Wells, restoring some of land in Banwell, Somerset, which the late King Harold had appropriated. This diploma had been dated to Whitson, 1068, and the considerable body of witnesses who attested it suggests that it was among the charters that were approved at Matilda's coronation. The last name on the list is that of Britrick, end quote. Yeah, that Britrick, the one who snubbed Matilda all those years ago. You know, it must have felt good to have her old flame there to witness her being crowned queen, you know, of his native kingdom. Soon after, that Saxon man who was imprisoned, Britrick, would suffer the fate explained earlier. Quote, It's deliciously tempting to imagine England's new queen confronted by the sight of her former lover amid the pomp and ceremonial of her coronation, forced to restrain her emotions for fear of causing a scandal that would ruin the most important day of her life. She may have resolved to exact her revenge at the earliest opportunity. If this is a flight of fancy, 
then it's certainly feasible that something had prompted Matilda to seek redress for the slight that she had suffered all those years ago. Seeing Britrick at her coronation would have been the perfect provocation, end quote. And the truth is, we, we know that Britrick was imprisoned around 1068, but we can't say if Matilda ordered it or not. I mean, we know the southwest of England was a hotbed of rebellion, so it's not a stretch to think that Britrick was caught conspiring against William's reign. Don't forget about Exeter and Githa. That seems the most likely reason, if you ask me, why he was imprisoned. We also know that Gloucestershire, for a spell around the same time, was stripped of their royal charter too, but again, was this Matilda's doing? No one really knows for sure. There's also the rumor, though, that Britrick, after two years in a Winchester prison, was murdered. Was it ordered by Matilda? Possibly, but not likely. I mean, I can't say for sure, but what I've learned so far about Matilda is that she was intelligent and she was calculating, but she wasn't really petty. But who knows? A spurned lover can be the most petty of, ad of adversaries, I'm sure. Britrick's vast land holdings would be owned by Matilda for the rest of her life, minus those lands she gifted to the prestigious St. Mary's of Beck, her husband's monastery of St. Etienne in Cain, as well as her own abbey in La Trinité in Cain. Was this her penance for what she might have done to Britrick? Again, we will most likely never really know the truth. But what this little episode does is it illuminates the meteoric rise of not only William, but also of the most impressive woman of the 11th century. Of course, my opinion there. But still, you can't deny, there was simply no one quite like Matilda of Flanders. <laughs>